Welcome to Reconstructed Faith, a podcast where we talk about truth you can build your life on. We hope to dive into the hard conversations of life and faith and seek out reasonable, substantive answers. My name is Colson Lechner, and I am joined by Chris Sherrod, Chris Legg, and Brent Starnes. This is Reconstructed Faith. Hey there, Colson Lechner here. And before we roll this next episode, I just want to provide a quick preface by saying that the following content, while not derogatory or inappropriate, is intended for adult listeners concerning the topic of sex and sexuality in the Bible. So obviously use your own discretion and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks again for listening and here we go. All right, well, welcome back to the Reconstructed Faith Podcast. My name is Colson Lechner, alongside my partners in crime, Chris Legg and Bryn Starnes in studio. Here's Chris Sherrod as well. Uh, guys, it's good to be back. I'm glad that we're back together. Bryn is back from her travels. Yay. <laughs> Although my only complaint is that everyone keeps calling it a baby moon, which is so <laughs> weird since I took my siblings along. <laughs> it's like, oh, you took your siblings on your honeymoon? What? Yeah. Your mom. It was actually, a pre-baby trip. I know. Your, <laughs> your, your, trip. your mom came up to me the other night at a uh, youth group uh, and she said, hey, I just want you to know, Bryn, Bryn did tell me to tell you. No, it's, I not, it's, it's not a baby. Man. I said, oh, I know. I said, that's why we're calling it a baby. Exactly right. Why else would we, right? Yeah. No. But, but you had a good time? Oh, it was so fun. Yeah. And Lots of national parks and mountains. So it was beautiful. So cool. Very good. Yeah. Did you end up going white rod rafting or no? I chose not to. Way I think to go. I'm far enough along where it probably wasn't the best decision. But I did do some hikes, so that was fun. Wonderful. Yeah. But just decided to read a book during the whitewater rafting for forget. <laughs> I feel there like that was probably a better decision. But you might be the good news is you might be more buoyant than you've ever been in your That's entire fair. life. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. Had a higher oh, chance man. of survival. Gosh. Well, <laughs> we are glad that you're back. And um we're gonna continue on with kind of our stepping into what the Bible talks about uh, with, around sexuality. Yep. Um, and we know that there's going to be a lot of like tangents that kind of come off of yes. this kind of central topic. Um, but where we wanted to go today was we talked a little bit about a general overview of sexuality, what the Bible says about sexuality, how is that defined in the Especially Bible? Especially Hebrew scriptures. Exactly. Yeah, and so The we, foundations. Exactly. And then so I think it would be good for us to move into the New Testament. That's what Brent and I were talking about yep. now um, and what Jesus talked about. And yep. then we can kind of move on from there. And Paul and yes, other exactly. writers in the New Testament would yes, be great. Yes, yes. That's, a, that's a great idea. Again, uh, so our, our, we're kind of going through the season of, is the Bible immoral by today's standards? Right. And I think we all kind of realized all together kind of at the same time, what that meant in some areas. So we were, we were having fun with all the sec, all the areas like racism and sexism and slavery and even genocide that that's kind of like pro- really probably not that the Bible and most of our modern thinking are, are more closely aligned than people would realize about those mm-hmm. topics. We just, it's been abused or misused or whatever. And now we're moving into sex as a topic and sexual sin and sexual and, and, yeah, it's just such a great reminder that we live in a culture where it's so built on Freudian thought that that sex is the root of human value and human happiness mm. that, yes, yeah, we're running into, yeah, there's going to be some things that, that the Bible teaches about sex that definitely fly in the face of the kind of limitless sexual expression and limitless sexual freedom that, yeah. that our culture does embrace. And finds offensive, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. any, anything that is, is says the other perspective. So, yeah. And then when, and then when you go and then, when, but it, it's interesting then when you follow what the Bible says, how it is actually how we were created to be. Yeah. And that's where we see relationships flourishing yeah. and families flourishing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's tough. It's, it's because people will, it's hard for people to accept some of those things. Understandable. Right, it's hard right, to accept. Right, right. It's hard to accept that anything. I was teaching a group of students this week, um, and and I threw out the question, um, which you guys have heard, some of you have heard me do, but I threw out the first question, what does it mean to be a slave? And we talked about this, and, and the answer was, you have to do what somebody else says. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what is freedom? 
And the definition that immediately came out was that you get to do whatever you want. I said, so, so slavery is you have to do what somebody else wants, and freedom is I get to do whatever I want. And so we're literally defining freedom in terms of slavery to self. Mm-hmm. And that will only work out if you're a good slave master. And if you're really good at being a slave master, then maybe it makes sense to be a slave to yourself. But if you suspect that you would be a self-absorbed, hypercritical, perfectionistic, out-of-control, you know, picket egotistical mm-hmm. slave master mm-hmm. mm, that applies to you too to mm-hmm. you being your own slave master and it just struck me as how dangerous it is that we're teaching everybody not only are you your own slave master but you're your own definer you're your own designer you're your own describer like there's nothing mm-hmm. else and wow well and even that is so many times when we are a slave to ourselves <clears throat> it's a slave to even one part of ourselves so it's <laughs> our sexuality our stomach or whatever it is right mm. and so even that is like a loose definition of that's a great point kind of yeah, a civil war yeah <laughs> yeah any thoughts uh shared well i i think we've talked before about the rise and triumph of the modern self the new mm-hmm. i guess it's probably a couple of years old now the carl Schumann book um but i came across a quote that i had shared this last summer at family camp um are you guys okay if I read a quote? Go for it. Definitely. Kind of extended quote. It really summarizes uh, a lot of what we're about to talk about and why this is so volatile and so, um, well, mainly, mainly volatile because people and why people take it so personal. Mm-hmm. Here's what he says. Uh, <clears throat> he's talking about how we got where we're at today. And he's already talked about the history with Freud and other people before him. But he says, um, the self was psychologized, psychology was then sexualized, and finally sex was politicized. Mm. Interesting. The stage, yeah, and then he says, the stage was set for the contemporary politics of sexual identity. Of course, few people read Reich and Marcuse, let alone Rousseau and Desaad, Desaad. but the idea, here's the main point that I was going to say, the idea that happiness is personal psychological satisfaction or self-fulfillment is the staple of sitcoms, soap operas, movies, and even commercials. And this mm-hmm. narrative, this illusion has powerful implications. When the goal of human existence is personal psychological satisfaction, then all moral codes are merely instrumental and therefore continually revisable to this subjective psychological end. And then he, he ends with kind of where we're at. He says that society seems to have decided that a perhaps the major way to achieve this is sex means that any attempt to enforce a code of sexual behavior is an assault on the individual and means whereby individuals are forced to be inauthentic and indeed unhappy. And anyone who therefore tries to enforce sexual codes is oppressive or a hater to use the cheap and lazy means of delegitimizing any critic of the moral mess that is late modernity. Hmm. I just thought that was an overall good explanation of why when we just talk about moral behavior, people take it as a personal attack on them. Mm-hmm. It's because that's such a, a central part of their identity because it has to do with I'm me feeling satisfied or self-fulfillment or whatever that um, anyways, that's why it becomes so volatile and uh, yeah, such a divisive issue. Yeah, that's really good. That's a great reminder. And I think we've said this before too, but for people who want a summary of the rise and triumph of the modern self, he wrote the abridged version recently, which is a strange new world. Strange new world. Yep. Um, It's much less intimidating. (laughs) Yeah. Man. That's really good. That's, that's good for us to have that. I I would encourage that anyone to read that. I think that's a, it's a good understanding of the pattern. And is that like a social commentary kind of thing? Is that how you would categorize that book? I think that's fair. Yeah. yeah. He starts out with the phrase, uh, I am a man trapped in a woman's body. And he says... Is this a Christian? To, is he a Christian author? Uh, he is no? a believer, but I don't think the book isn't necessarily okay, overtly. I'm, it's just kind of tracing where they're at. But okay. what he talks about is that statement would have not made sense to like our grandparents. Like that, the statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Um, right. Would have just sounded like nonsense. Because it used to be you change your your psychology, your way of thinking to match your body. Now it's you change your body to match your you know your psychology. But he does a really good job just talking about in general. I was really convicted where 
he says, if you had asked your grandfather or great grandfather, um, is your job fulfilling to you? He would have looked puzzled. Like he would have given <laughs> right. you this weird look like, what, what do you mean? Is my job? Ful-? Like, do you find fulfillment in your job? Like that just doesn't make, no, that doesn't register I find fulfillment with that in my family and my faith. And <laughs> those right. are, those are where we find fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Right. He'd be more like I'm providing, like I'm, I'm doing, you know, a, a good work with my hands or something, but not, you know, do you, even in Chris, you'd appreciate the part he talks about even the role of counselors is not to help someone now figure out why and how they can best fit into society. It's to affirm that, no, you're right. And everybody else is wrong. And right. They all have the problem and it's just, it's not actually helping someone cope with reality. Mm-hmm. Yes. That, that actually is a, is an issue we face in the therapeutic world right now. Big time is, yeah. um, is the, is the only job of a therapist to affirm. And my opinion is that with good therapists, the answer is no, it's not your job to affirm. If all they needed was affirmation, they don't need you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, they could probably affirm themselves. Most people now affir- affirmation is a healthy part of a healthy relationship, but it's not the whole relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. curious, this is kind of a tangent, but you had mentioned having like some universities not allow people to come and do kind of their master's level oh, yeah. hours yeah, yeah. at your <laughs> right at your office. Um, is that a reason? Because you probably wouldn't be affirming yes. those in those ways. Not autom- they- not automatically affirming. Okay. And of, of whatever the person's lifestyle is. Uh-huh. And that's, by the way, that's true of any, in my opinion, of any good therapy is right. part of the job of a therapist is to help you question right. your life decisions, not to just affirm them. Yeah. Right. Um, no matter what they are. And so uh, anyway, that's a, that's so a, we're seeing, but we're seeing this more and more and yes. you're, you're now, you're feeling the ramifications in your business. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. 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 yeah that's happening for sure. Even okay. a tenant of good community, like good. <coughs> Yeah, community yeah. of of saying like, hey, if I don't want my friends just to affirm everything that I do, right? Like if if they truly care about me to the point where they're willing to be bra- like courageous and mm-hmm. and loving to the yeah. point where it's difficult, uncomfortable. Like I would yeah. want them to ask me really hard questions, and yet we're we're seeing that community is equated with a the same type of approval. I that's think that's right. And then everything else is oppression. Well, and that's perfect because as we continue our conversation about what the Bible teaches about sex, what God has revealed through his word about sex, it's yeah. not going to be affirming. Right. Um, it's not going to be all affirm. It's going to be extremely affirming. God is very pro sex in the marriage covenant. Yeah. Would you um, say it's limiting? Um, it is not, it is very, anti-sex outside of that marriage covenant. Yeah. It's not even limiting. It is forbidden. Yeah. Like it is, it is, it is a clear line in the sand of inside of marriage. Actually, what I tell premarital couples is as a, as a couple who isn't, who isn't in that covenant relationship, purity is experienced essentially by keeping your hands off each other. I don't mean that literally, but sexually. And that very same purity after the covenant has been initiated is expressed with essentially no holds barred mm. that it's, it goes from one extreme to the other. And, and that is a, uh, and that's clearly defined. I think so in the Bible. So if we're jumping now into more of that, okay, what does the New Testament say about this? Where does your brain go to? Or both of y'all, all of you. Yeah. Where where does where do your thoughts go? And how yeah, how can we answer that question of what does the New Testament say? Because my brain, I, I automatically go to First Corinthians six. Okay. But but I was like, but then we back it up and and you've got Jesus. Yeah. I think to me the most helpful one even is Jesus. Well, on the on the negative side and then on the affirmative side. On the negative side, you've got him explaining even just marriage is such a beautiful, precious, awesome thing that you've got to guard it even from lustful thoughts. Yeah. Right. So Matthew 5, where he's talking about, you know, you've heard it say don't commit adultery. And you can check that box and just go, I have not physically had sex with someone yeah. who is not my spouse. But then he goes even deeper and he actually 
raises, this is what I think is interesting. He raises the moral bar even higher. Yep. He says, it's not just that you haven't physically done it, but it, it's what's going on in your heart, what's going on in your thoughts. And you're looking at someone with um, lustful thoughts and, um, you know, fantasizing or thinking about it. Uh, and it's not your spouse, then it's you're sinning. So I think he's, he's talking about a sin there. Um, mm-hmm. But then he talks about how the, how crucial it is to, to guard your thoughts. And then he talks about really what you're saying, Chris, is that you've got to take drastic measures, right? Like whether it's equivalent to not that you have to go cut your eye out or cut your arm off, but equivalent to, man, this is such a big deal. I need to do whatever it takes to be, you know, safe in this area and to guard it. So that's where he says, you know, if you're right, I cause you to sin, we'll gouge it out. Yeah. Yep. But I've never only sinned with one eye, but, um, <laughs> so. but, if, but if you knew you had to literally do that, you might protect yeah. one of your eyes at all times right. just to make sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, and we do know, obviously Jesus is speaking in hyperbole there, or it's te- teaching a lesson because his followers didn't all immediately start cutting off hands and poking out eyes. Like right. they understood him in the moment. Yeah. Um, later, actually, some early church followers took him much more seriously. There were there were first and second and third generation Christians who turned themselves into eunuchs, for example, in an effort to avoid lust and sexual sin. Um, I mean, you have to admire their dedication. <laughs> yeah, their exactly. Even if they... <laughs> Their interpretation. I think their hermeneutics may have been (laughs) off, but uh, hermeneutics, once again, are very important. Uh, We've talked about making some apparel that I feel like we would have to stray from that (laughs) (laughs) That illustration. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But anyway, anyway. So, okay, that's good. So Matthew chapter five. Yep, and that's that's um, in the middle and the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and and even there, the the Greek there, he divides out different Greek words. Um, porneo, that Greek word meaning any type of sexual sin. What verse is that in? I know we've talked about it before. We're in, I'm starting in, I'm in 27 right now. Matthew, Matthew 5, 5 27. Um, so he has the word for adultery, which, which it's, it's application is a little tough. It certainly means two people who aren't married to each other having sex. It, or it could, sorry, it could mean that any situation in which two people not married to each other have sex. It certainly means two people, at least one of whom is married, having sex with someone other than their spouse. Those may sound identical, um, but there's there's debate over whether this word adultery would apply to, say, for example, premarital sex. But two people who neither who are married, would this word apply to them? And there's debate about that. And um, there's plenty of other passages that would include that. It's just whether this word would. Yeah, and that's um, where porneo comes in. Yeah, porneo is any sexual immorality, which mm-hmm. certainly includes sex with someone you're not married to. Um, and whereas this, uh, uh, I can't pronounce the Greek word for adultery. It's a tough word to pronounce, and okay. I'm not good at pronouncing Greek. But moikasis, mm-hmm. moikasis. Um, anyway, okay. Um, but uh, which means married people having sex with someone other than the person they're married to. Okay. Um, anyway. And Jesus here may be using them almost interchangeably, but then he uses that word, um, kind of epithymus, um, that, that word uh, for heat, steam, passion, lust. Um, and that's why it's often translated lustful intent. Um, epi, the, the, uh, like, a, like a epidural, something it really dives into, um, the, like the, the depth of lustful intent. So this, this isn't Jesus condemning finding someone attractive or saying, man, he's cute or man, she's hot or something like that. Like that's not, he's not condemning uh, that just, just baseline attraction here, I, who you find attractive and who you don't. It's, it's a mental decision to pursue uh, that, to pursue those attractives, attractions, even if it's only pursued internally. Um, that would still fall into that. And Jesus, as I had one one of my pastors say, Jesus is not impressed by your lack of opportunity or your lack of courage. And so if the only reason you're not trying to have sex with somebody is because you're either afraid of the consequences, which, you know, because yeah. you're just not brave enough, or because you don't think you have a shot with that person, you're yeah. just not, That's you not, just don't have the opportunity. Right. Neither one of those impress him. Cause so, he, and I think I've even heard you say like, 
well, if I wasn't married, I would do, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of. Yeah, that's like dangerous. If, yeah, if, that's if a dangerous was, path. If there was no barrier here, that's right. Then I would, it's like, you might want to, you're, you're not in the right spot. Yeah, you're not in the right yeah. spot. That's right. Yeah. It's a, if I could, I would yes. language um, is probably the internal process. And it certainly would include things like fantasy and, um, and that kind of stuff. And probably pornography could easily fall into that, even though it does obviously fall into porneo there, uh, right. you know, the word is there, but, um, so it is intriguing that we start as Chris just showed us, what we start with is God's standard for sex, uh, kind of being for all of us, right? I mean, for everybody, no matter what your attractions are, no matter what your self perception is, no matter what. Jesus starts by protecting sex at the thought level first, mm-hmm. which is very similar, obviously, to the Ten Commandments, which is the last of the commandments is a thought level protection. Go ahead, Chris. And I was going to add, too, I think, obviously, Jesus is saying sexual integrity is so precious that it's not even violated in the privacy of your mind. Yeah, but I would add also it is also valuing the woman being lusted after. It's saying she she's precious, and whether or not she knows you ever looked at her that way or thought about her that way, um, I want to protect her integrity as well and not have you walking around thinking this doesn't affect anyone. Like he wants to guard against her being looked at that way because again, Mm -hmm. if she knew that you were thinking those thoughts, she would feel wronged or violated or something like that. So in this. It's not just your thoughts between you and God. It's also, hey, I want to protect her being looked at in a mm-hmm. lustful way too. And we know that those thoughts and r- repeated as well as with porn and stuff yeah. can devalue, dehumanize Absolutely. in the male brain. Well, and, and the female, and the female brain. brain. Yeah, it definitely. So, yeah. It works on the human brain that way. Yes. Maybe, maybe more quickly or more universally with the male brain, okay. but, but honestly... It has that that has those damaging but we, effects. But we know that scientifically, it's not yes. just oh, yes. like, oh, we think this is the case. It's like, no, this is it has this effect. If anybody wants to learn a little bit about it from the purely secular perspective, there are now more and more TED talks being created because the culture is scrambling to try to figure out what to do about pornography, and they don't have tools to deal with pornography because um, so many of us are addicted to it, and the modern version is so addictive. And um, it's a huge industry now. Yeah, you know, billions. It has yeah. been a long time, but it can just continues to grow massive, right, right. massive. Most the the pornography line here is now. I mean, it's going to be bigger than most national uh, national budgets. Wow. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know the number now, but I remember it's like way back in '06 that it crossed the line where the pornography industry represented more money than like all of the professional leagues combined, NFL, yeah, it was like NBA, baseball, MLB, all, all of them NFL. combined. Yeah. Combined. And it was more than that. Somebody quoted me a statistic just the other day that something in the area of $4,000 was, it? I think it meant $4,000 a second is spent on pornography. Oof. Oh my goodness. Um, so it's a, and consider how much pornography is free. Yeah. And then consider that $4,000. I don't, I, and it may, you know, I need to probably look that up because it could be as, much as 60 times. It could be as much as 4,000 a minute. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the number I was told, but I yeah. have to look that up. But it, it was either one is a shockingly high number that you don't even know what to do with in your brain. Yeah. Um, anyway. So that, I and mean, our culture is so blind to the connection between the demand that pornography creates and sex trafficking today. Oh yeah. Like, like everyone's all against sex trafficking. Like they, they, they would say that's wrong, but they don't understand. Okay. But what's feeding it in a major way, the pornography, the sensuality, all this stuff going on in our culture is, is driving that and feeding it. And it's like, it's like the, what's where you cut off the head and another three grow. What's yeah, the, the Hydra. Yeah. The Hydra. Yep. It's well, like, I think you're it's, trying to stop that, but it's, I think it's easier to turn an eye because so many people are users or addicted to it. And mm-hmm. if, if you admit the connection, then you have to address the first part of it. Yeah. And yeah. that's further than most people are ready to, to go yeah. to. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, would you, when it comes to the word porneo, would you say that Jesus's contemporaries understood that he was referencing? So I know in the last episode, you guys talked about in the Old Testament, like what all would fall under that. And, and then that would, anything that 
would fall under the word porneo when Jesus uses it, his contemporaries would understand like all the different aspects of that, that were mentioned in the old Testament. Do you think that's I, I accurate? Do. Yeah, I do. I think because that would have been so in the Septuagint, uh, the Septuagint, which was the Greek copy of the old Testament or right. the Greek copy of Hebrew scripture, which is the copy many, many would have been reading in the time of Jesus. Like, when the Apostle Paul quotes Hebrew Scripture, he mm-hmm. quotes the Septuagint. Yeah. Um, and so we know that's what most of them are seeing. And unless I am gravely mistaken, I feel confident about this, that each of those times in Leviticus 18 that we see the the words for sexual immorality, right. it is the word porneo. Yeah. In the, when in the Greek copy, it is porneo. And I, there's a chance I'm off on that, but I, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what's being the Greek word that's used there. And so, yes... Yeah. When Jesus says sexual immorality, when he uses when he uses whatever Aramaic word mm-hmm. that we assume he was speaking most of the time, that his followers translated into the Greek word porneo, everyone listening would have known he was referencing those five plus issues listed in yeah. Leviticus. So when people say mm-hmm. Jesus didn't reference certain types of sexual expression, right, that's, that's not accurate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that would be like if, if we, if I said, Hey, don't no, we're not going to eat any more donuts. And later when someone's eating a chocolate filled donut and they go, well, you didn't say chocolate filled. Well, I don't, I don't need to. I said all donuts. Right. And so to say, well, Jesus didn't reference that one sexual morality. No, he, he didn't need to. He referenced all sexual morality. Oh. And so whatever those one different examples are, yeah, that would, okay. those would be included in that. Okay. So I just love that your mind automatically goes to donuts as your it's, illustration. It's, it's not like, I mean, I have more than one addiction and sugar is one. Um, pornography is another one. And that's a, like, those are, yeah, those are very real and very powerful. This is another one of those examples like we talked about last time about erotic and intimate and illicit expressions of sexuality where God's, what we're learning is that God's pattern for this is better. Mm-hmm. It's better for a culture. It's better for a society. It's better for marriage. It's better for personal health. And, it is sad and intriguing when we see, for example, when, when I've watched several of these TED Talks and watching these totally secular people who don't even know what the Bible teaches about these things coming out and saying, man, this is this is destroying a generation, especially of young men. What do we do? Like, mm-hmm. Because we can't tell them to stop because that would be limiting their sexual freedom. So since that's not an option, now what do we do? And it's just, it's again, God's answer of no, stop. Mm. Find, trust me that I know what I'm talking about. And we're all terrible at it. I'm terrible at it. Um, and so trust me that I know what I'm talking about. And I don't believe him. They knows what he's talking about either mm-hmm. a lot of the time, but yeah, that doesn't mean he doesn't. Yeah. Okay. I for Matthew, Bryn, go ahead. Sorry. Bren, this might've been an irreversible damage or I might've been thinking of something else. I don't know, but if you'll help me remember, but just, there was a short brief story about a, a teenage boy having sex with a, his girlfriend. He's like a young guy probably 13 years old and he starts choking her yeah mm. i remember and she's that. like what is that in the book you know what i'm talking about yeah. and she's like what and he's like i th- i thought that's what you i thought that's what you do is that not what girls like right like he had learned that and that was in his yep. brain so i'm just thinking of the train wreck chris you're talking about like they don't yes. know what to do i'm just thinking of the train wreck that this is going to leave on on girls not just the the obvious sex trafficking but just wives and women feeling abused and mm-hmm. um seen as you know just stories of boyfriends wanting girls, their girlfriends to watch porn with them. Yeah. And just, it's just going to lead to just more and more mm. just brokenness. There, wow. Well, there's never an end to it. It's a, yep. you know, ravenous. Yeah. yeah. So moving on from Matthew chapter five, mm. then mm. what are other things that come to your mind in this <clears throat> conversation? Well, I think the next one that jumps out to me is, is then Matthew 19. Is there something between those? Nope. I had okay. another one in Mark, but that it's Matthew. If we're going to chronological, I was going to say 19 as well. Okay. So in Matthew 19, um, in verse three, the Pharisees came up to him, testing him and said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Um, which is apparently a big rabbinical question in the time of Jesus is under what conditions could was a man justified before God to divorce his wife? And there was a huge debate over these extreme examples. 
And is it as much as like, well, she burned the toast, so that's impurity, so I can divorce her all the way. And then Jesus gives the other extreme answer, by the way. And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Um, so it's Jesus then in this moment combines a verse from chapter one of Genesis and a verse from chapter two of Genesis, and he puts them together to define marriage. Um, and and the, the joining together, we'll learn from Paul's writing that the joining together of two to become one flesh, a major physical representation of that is sex. Um, Paul's going to reference not joining yourself to a prostitute, for example. So there's something powerful about the sexual encounter that's a joining power. But in this conversation, one of the things that we have to talk through is, I mean, Jesus seems to be offering a pretty clear definition, a pretty clear he is making a clarification here. It's not he this is this would be the time for Jesus to clarify things about marriage. What all applies to marriage? What all does marriage include? What all and and what he gives is a very limiting answer. Like under what conditions is divorce acceptable? And and essentially his initial answer is none. Under no now he has already said way back in chapter five that that adult that Im, that sexual immorality is the only time that it would be excusable. Um, and, but here he's, he offers up just what God has joined together, let no man separate. And it's a, it's a powerful picture. What you would be stuck with very quickly here is when he says, therefore, so here's his definition of marriage. Marriage is a man leaving his father and mother and being bonded to his wife. And that's the, the idea here is he's leaving them that he now has a new covenant relationship, a new prioritization with her that is over them. This is now his top relationship on earth, and the two become one flesh and and stay that way. Like that's the and then when they ask about divorce, he talks about the hardness of heart is their problem. Um, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses, verse eight, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And so again, there's a covenant there that, that adultery is the breach of that covenant. Sexual immorality is the breach of that covenant. And, and a, a conversation I've been having with somebody is on this question on verse 5, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and that he shall become one flesh. And immediately the question has to be asked, how many different, how many different words can you put in place of man and wife? How many are allowed? So by a man leaving his father and mother, so a man shall hold fast to his wife. So under the word wife, can you put husband? Can you put sibling? Can you put tree? Can you put pet? Animal, can you yeah. put, you know, what all can you put there? And how many different words can the word wife mean? Because mm. Jesus seems to be very much so clarifying this, it, this is it. It's just this. And you have to make the case, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his husband, that, that Jesus meant that too by the word wife. And the Greek word here is gyne, which means female. It's actually the Greek word for female. And so obviously that's a great limiter. Marriage includes this. That's why you often mm -hmm. see, I remember when Dr. Craig, William Lane Craig was asked the first time about uh, gay people. He said that somebody asked him like, why do you think gay people can't be married? And I don't know if he was playing dumb or if he was just making a point or the whatever. The question asker? The question, no, no, no. The question asker asked, the answer that Dr. Craig gave was, well, gay people can be married. Of course, gay people can. They have the same rights to be married as anybody else. They just, I mean, they have to be married to the opposite sex. So if what you mean, what you mean to say is same sex marriage, whatever your attractions are, you have the same rights to be married as anybody else. Gotcha. Marriage mm -hmm. just means a man and a woman. That's what the word means. Therefore, sure, a, a, a gay man can marry a woman, no doubt. That's because that's what marriage means. And that was the whole argument made from the beginning that he made. And, and that's, you know, that's obviously that's a difference between the Bible and the United States now is that Bible has a clear definition of yeah. marriage mm -hmm. that is between a man and a woman. And then the U.S. government has decided it can include any number of other populations as well. And so, 
it, it isn't that we're defying one or the other. We're just saying they are not in agreement. They don't define marriage the same way. The U.S. government and, the, and Jesus Christ do not define, unless you want to make the case that Jesus' teaching here is not specific, that when he says a man holds fast to a woman, that that's marriage, that by that Jesus meant a man holds fast to a man or a woman holds fast to a woman or an adult holds fast to a child or a human holds fast to a dolphin, like whatever, or, or to themselves, that's coming a common one. Yeah. Like a man shall hold fast to himself, that that would apply. Unless you want to try to make that case, you're stuck saying, okay, the, this marriage over here is a, it's a civil marriage. It's just not a biblical marriage. And what we're saying is hermeneutically, we can't, we can't I, make that. I can't make that can't leap. Make that. I can't see how you possibly can, can defend that well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Chris. And I think even just how offensive Jesus words would be today that God made them male and female. Yeah. Like there's, mm-hmm. it's binary. There's two options. And this is thousands of years after Genesis. And so it's the same thing today. Like I'm going to follow Jesus pattern. I'm going to go back to, the original intent. And I think from, if, if I were to narrow down, um, I think it was in the book, I was reading the book, God and the Transgender Debate. I think it was in there where he talks about, if you were to narrow this passage down or narrow the definition of marriage down to three words, it would be heterosexual, monogamous, and permanent. Like mm. that's, that's to summarize what Jesus is saying, it's heterosexual. Um, so opposite gender, it's monogamous. That's the only other person and it's permanent. Um, I heard someone say one time, wedlock, wedlock should be a padlock was the way they put it. <laughs> but, um, but anyways, <laughs> that, that really narrows it down to the specifics. And as we've been talking about, again, it's the same thing of, it is not in any, um, intent to hinder or limit or ruin someone's fun or enjoyment. It's to enhance it. It's because God is pro-sex. And wants you to experience the joy of a relationship that's you're not comparing yourself to anybody else, or you understand we're in this for life, or he he wants you to have this flourishing experience. And so he says that's why it's got to be heterosexual, monogamous, and permanent. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And when we don't see standard. and we and when we don't see God as the d- designer and definer of things, and it's rather for us to decide, it makes sense that it would that would seem limiting and oppressive right. yes. from the well, cultural perspective. That's right. Yeah. And I think also it goes back to a difference of goal of sexuality mm. because like we're talking about with culture, if everything is for my happiness and my fulfillment and my instant gratification of whatever I define that to be, then, you know, in the end, like God's goal for marriage isn't, those things, you know, happiness isn't the ultimate goal for marriage. And so I think there's even a contradicting of goals where it's like, yeah, I mean, this definition does require a lot of things that are countercultural when it comes to self-sacrifice and, and a magnifying of the picture of Christ (coughs) in the church and, and laying down of a lot of my instant wants and wishes, which, which is countercultural and isn't, isn't leading to um, fulfillment in that sense. You right. know what I mean? Well, keep in mind that that's a good point because the, the Western culture right now is not on the same page with biblical culture. Right. And I don't mean Jewish culture. I mean, kingdom culture, what, mm-hmm. what the Bible is teaching ought to be the culture of man. They aren't in alignment. And so again, we're just accepting we're starting this part of the conversation with that in place. Mm-hmm. Self-fulfillment is not the primary goal of the kingdom. Self-sacrifice is the primary goal mm-hmm. of the kingdom mindset. And so, yeah, it's if you start with the idea that my goal is to somehow maybe sacrifice myself for the cause of the kingdom, just saying no to sexual partners seems like a relatively low price relative to the ultimate price I've already signed off for. Right. Um, that's good. But I think it's an important thing to to acknowledge because sometimes I think it's easy for Christians to try. We, we fall into the trap of trying to sell the Christian sexual ethic as like, no, but you'll be happier this way. And it's like, that's not necessarily true. Like if you're trying to, Mm -hmm. depending on what, how do you define happiness? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what your specific 
like attraction is and what your specific, like all these different things about individuals. If you're trying to sell a Christian ethic to them as like, no. And yes, we do believe that God knows best and knows what leads to our, our ultimate like fulfillment in him. But I think we have to be careful when we're trying to talk to others about the Christian sexual ethic that we don't make it a prosperity gospel of, that's an excellent point. Um, you know, a, a prosperity sexual gospel. Yeah. But anyway, I think that's good. That's, that's well said. And a good reminder, there's that that's not his ultimate promise is that we'll be sexually fulfilled. Right. Right. Um, a a great, a great analogy of, I mean, a great picture of that would be if I'm covenanted to my wife and she is then in an accident and for some reason could not engage sexually, you, you, that is not an, an excuse or a justification for divorce. Mm -hmm. Um, because that's not the primary goal. It is, it is a typically a very healthy part of a marriage right. because God designs it, but it's not a, it's not the end all be all. Mm-hmm. But our culture has <clears throat> made it that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It is the end yeah. all be all of all human happiness. Yeah. It's the only source. I was, I was stunned. I mean, I'm a, I'm a psychologist and I've read Freud and to go back and reread some of Freud's philosophical statements about sex and realizing how much we have fully accepted his mm-hmm. His standards for that was was impressive even for me. All right, Chris, do you want to jump on over to Mark? Yeah, the other one that came to my mind was uh, in Mark 7 when um, Jesus was dealing on one of many occasions with traditions and commandments and things like that, and um, his disciples weren't washing their hands like they were supposed to and um, doing other things. And he explains to everybody the, the issue is not what's going into you. It's what's coming out of you. Mm. And um, he just talks about ultimately the heart. Um, so, in so that's the context. Um, yeah. I'll just pick up in verse uh, 20. <clears throat> this is Mark seven. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him for from within out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual morality. So there's the perneo theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. And the reason I would go to that is it's because of what, what we just already said. It's, it's sex isn't bad. It's God mm-hmm. thought it up. But there really are a lot of people who, and I, I don't know if girls struggle with this more than guys who have really been really, really focused on staying sexually pure that end up thinking of sex as a bad thing, almost mm-hmm. even after you get married, that it becomes a struggle like all that. Cause, and again, I think it's how your, your parents framed it mm-hmm. um, and explaining it to you that it's such a dirty, awful, gross thing you'd never want to do. And then, Oh, now you're married. And then having that mental shift of, but <laughs> yeah. I thought this is a gross, dirty, awful, you know, thing. Oh, and now right. Yes. So I think it's parents job to explain the beauty of it and God's design of it. And then the problem is that we're, we're the ones who ruin it. We're the ones, and this is bringing me back to Mark seven, that Jesus says the issue is our hearts. Our hearts are the ones that twist it and get focused on sensuality or sexual morality or adultery. Mm -hmm. Um, Sex itself isn't bad. Right. I think that's a great point. I think there's a lot of, and I've talked to a lot of, um, and maybe it is specifically women, but that's just who I've talked to more about this appropriately, you know, <laughs> but, um, right. but I think you're right that it's, and I know it's a really difficult line to walk for parents to teach. How do you teach that God made sex beautiful, but like, don't do it now, you know, like that's, but I think there's a lot of shame that is placed on sex in general, instead of just an inappropriate expression of it. And so it does carry over into a healthy or biblical marriage, because instead of teaching sex from a healthy standpoint of like, Hey, this is beautiful and was designed by God. Um, like we've talked about before, it's not something man (laughs) discovered behind God's back. I think that does end up affecting women at least once they get married and then they can't disassociate it from shame in general. Yeah. It's, it's but. okay. So the way here's, I actually just got to teach this too, to those students. Um, it's different to teach nowadays. Like I had one, I had three 30 minute chapels and the last one I wanted to tell them, this is who God says you are. Mm-hmm. 
but they're not going to listen to me if I just start with that. Right. Who cares what God says I am? And so I have to spend an hour, two 30-minute sessions before teaching them there is such a thing as truth, mm-hmm. and there is such a thing as bestowed identity, and it's better than the identity we give ourselves. Right. Now, here's what God says about you. Like, I have to work my way there nowadays. And so, um, but one of the ways I showed them was the way I showed it at a church, which, which is what, you're, what is sacred versus common right. versus trash. And so the, the, the world began to teach that sex was common. And that was part of the sexual revolution. It's not special. It's just something everybody does. Animals do it. People do it. Everybody does it. It's nothing special. It's just something things that people do. Mm-hmm. And, and sadly, in many cases, the church's response was to, was to say, no, it's not common. It's trash. And so I bring three plates in and, and I brought in a paper plate and an everyday plastic plate. And then one of my wife's, hopefully she doesn't listen to this and hear that I took one of her grandmother's pieces of bone china down to Houston to teach this. Um, I told the kids, I was like, do not let her know that I brought this down here. Um, but, but so, you know, I'm teaching it and I just toss the paper plate. I'm like, it's trash. And that's sadly what often we're taught is uh, mm-hmm. sex is trash. Like get, get as far from you as possible. Flee from sex instead of flee from sexual morality. It's flee from sex and oh, it's bad and it's, and yeah. so we throw it away like, yeah, it's worthless. And then common is the everyday, like this is where you have mac and cheese. Like it's not special. It's just, you know, it's just common. If it, mm-hmm. if it does break, who cares? It's, you know, they cost 99 cents at Walmart or what, you know. And so then I throw it out there and it doesn't, it didn't break. If, if it had, again, the point was it doesn't matter whether it breaks or not. It didn't. Okay, good. It, if it hadn't, I don't, wouldn't care. And then I hold up the fine china and say, you know, this, you know, explain what it is and that, you know, it, it's in a careful, a careful place in the pantry and it's protected and it's not within reach of the kids. And, and we pull it out for very special occasions and it's got its role. And, and then I pretend like I'm going to throw it too and everybody freaks out. And, <laughs> and anyway, but that's how I think we've got to begin teaching our kids clearly about mm-hmm. things like sex. We are sacred and therefore our sexuality is sacred. It's not we don't we don't tell people don't engage in sex outside of marriage because sex is trash. Right. We say don't engage in sex sex outside of marriage because sex is sacred. It's special. It's it's awesome, and you don't you don't just grab grandma's your your great grandmother's fine china off the to put the dog food in. I mean, you just don't you don't do that. Mm-hmm. And yet. If we understood it as sacred, then we would say, like, in its proper place, it is exactly what it's the best. It is the very best. Therefore, you don't abuse it or use it or treat it as something less than the very best. You you treat it nice. Mm-hmm. I heard a guy say one time, he says once to teenagers, like, how many of you have a cover on your phone? Is that because it's trash? Mm-hmm. Mm. How many of you protect your phone because it's trash? Like, no, you protect your phone because it's special to you. You don't want it to break. Like it's, you spend sometimes half as much as the value of the phone on a case for it. Yeah. And so why would you do that? Because it's trash? No, because it's not trash. It's because it's something special you want. And that's, if we can keep, if we can figure out a way to get that be the message from the church, that that is Jesus's picture of sex is that it is, it's sacred. It's not something you toy with because it's not a toy. It is a, sacred, powerful implement for bonding people forever. I was, I was looking up, Jesus uses three different words there in that passage, Chris, that you were reading that. What was it in Mark seven? Starting in verse 20. Okay. So he uses the word defiles, which is, is anything that makes, it literally means to make common. That's the Mm. literal word there Mm. to make it common. It doesn't mean to make it trash just to make it common. That's like using something out of the temple for common usage. And then it keeps going down. Sexual immorality, that is our porneo word. Adultery, that is our other, that's the moikei. Moikei. I don't know how to say that. Anyway. Um, Which cup, is two people, at least one of whom is married, having yep. sex outside. Okay. Good. So at least that. Um, and then it is, but the problem is it can generally mean just to seduce someone or to violate someone. And so the word, the, the fact that it concluded the word violate is what gives it a secondary meaning. Like it would mean to violate the, someone else's covenant or to violate your own covenant. Are you violating somebody if it's a consensual act of sex outside of marriage? I don't know. And it may be, mm. uh, but certainly you are, you may be seducing them. So anyway, it's, it's a tough word yeah. for mm. us, but, but it doesn't matter because Jesus uses both words. Yes. 
Um, he uses porneo. He uses this one. He also uses sensuality. Um, aselge, aselge, um, which means excess, particularly sexual excess, debauchery, license, thinking that you can do whatever you want. And then he even uses uh, coveting, uh, pleonexi. Again, if somebody out there actually knows how to pronounce Greek, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, but the um, here you have the word that means always wanting more. Wow. Um, and clearly that can apply to yeah. uh, sexuality, but does not only apply to that. So Jesus uses three clearly sexual words in this passage, and then one word that would apply as well to sexuality in the midst of these others. And he wow. lists them alongside theft, murder, and pride, um, all, you know, deeply offensive mm. sins. Yeah. And so again, we don't get away with saying Jesus didn't talk about these things or take them seriously. Yes, yeah. he did. Okay. As the, as the loving shepherd that he is, you, you don't get to say, well, because Jesus loved everybody, therefore he didn't talk about these things. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're, I think we're out of time for this one. Oh yeah. What we'll probably do is now next time pick up with what Paul and other people perfect talk about uh, in the New Testament. So thank you for listening. Yeah. And uh, we'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Reconstructed Faith. If you enjoyed what you heard or were challenged, please leave us a review. It'll help other people find us. If you have questions or a topic you'd like to hear discussed, shoot me an email at info at southspring.org. Reconstructed Faith is a resource of South Spring Baptist Church. Remember, don't give up, trust God, search for answers.